The following message was preached at Gospel City Church, a church that seeks to cast a gospel net for the people of Kuala Lumpur. Thank you, uh, Denise and David. Um, it's not every day that you get to hear four chapters of scripture read out uh, word by word. That's quite something. So good morning. Uh, I hope that you've had your coffee this morning um, because we're already 20 minutes in. Uh, we've read four chapters and you're going to need all your concentration about you uh, if we're going to glean lots from this. All right. So yeah, by the way, my name's Ikan. I'm, I'm a covenant partner here at GCC. Uh, and I just want to say if you're here for the first time, you're very welcome. We're very glad to have you. Or even if you've just been visiting us a couple of times, uh, whether you're in person or online, uh, just know that we're, we're glad to have you. Welcome to our little family. Okay. So uh, let's get right into it. We have a lot of material to cover. All right. And I'm going to pray in a second, but let me just catch us up. So we're pressing ahead in our Genesis series, uh, and it's called But God. But before we dive into our chapters, uh, let's, let's see where we've been, right? So it wasn't so many chapters ago uh, in Genesis 37 that we zoomed into Jacob's family and were introduced to Joseph, right? Um, he's a son who's favored by Jacob, and he's a spoiled brat, basically. And his brothers really don't like him uh, for good reason, and they end up selling him into slavery in Egypt, uh, where things end up getting worse for him. He's thrown into prison and, on top of that, forgotten. And in the meantime, we find that Jacob, Judah, and his family are also dysfunctional and evil. We have the whole episode in Genesis 38 uh, with Tamar and Judah's sons dying. Um, but at the end of Genesis 38, Judah actually repents of how he's treated Tamar. And we're left wondering if perhaps Judah has actually turned over a new leaf, right? And in chapters 40 to 41, we find Joseph's meteoric rise from prisoner to prime minister. Uh, he rightly interprets Pharaoh's dreams that there'll be seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine, right? We also find the author trying to tell us that Joseph's character is starting to look rather questionable, right? He doesn't make any effort to visit his father. And he begins to take on the identity of an Egyptian, even right down to his physical appearance, right? Because uh, Hebrew men didn't shave their beards, but he does, right? He becomes cleanly shaven. And so his Egyptianness is beginning to show right out to his physical appearance. And perhaps it's the kindness of Pharaoh that has got Joseph thinking, you know, all my life, all I've known from my brothers, my own family was hatred. Um, but here I am in a foreign land. And while I've suffered a bit, right, look what Pharaoh has given me. It would have been really easy for Joseph to justify that to himself, right? So here, as we're entering these chapters, we have a Joseph who we know is hardened, who's resentful towards his family, who betrayed him, and a Joseph whose success has basically made him forget about God. Remember last week, Carl's sermon, he was telling us about how the text begins to show us that Joseph has sort of forgotten about God, right? And meanwhile, all the while, the terrible famine rages in the land, right? The seven years do come true. So that's the context as we're entering into our four chapters today. Uh, let me just pray for us and ask for God's help before we dive in. Father, these four chapters, they're long, but these are words of life. And we want to have life and have life to the full. So as we come to your word, I pray that, uh, Spirit, will you help us? We will not be convicted of anything in here without your work. Uh, we also remember the, the other four uh, brothers who are preaching in other churches, and I pray that they too would speak words of life that will point people back to your son 
the only person in whom life is found. So help us. Uh, I am a weak man, but your word is powerful and your spirit is powerful. Amen. Amen. Now, I just want to stay, say right from the start, uh, Genesis has been all about God being at work, whether directly or indirectly, right? So either it's very, very visible, right? Or it, it's almost like God isn't even mentioned in some of these passages, but we clearly see him at work, right? Even through the flawed actions, perhaps, of some of the characters, um, but he is at work. And in this passage is no different, right? We don't see any direct intervention, but we have characters who reference God, who recognize the, the work of God in what's happening. And so if you, let's start from the end. If you look at Genesis 45, uh, at the end of this reconciliation, what Joseph says is he says, God sent me here before you to preserve life. So if we start with the end and beginning, we know right away that what happens in this passage is God's orchestration. It's not an accident. It's not pure coincidence. This is God at work. So let me also start by saying this. Have you ever watched an artist at work? Well, it's usually a really amazing experience, right? The artist starts with a blank canvas, and they begin with a few brush strokes here and there that seem quite random. Uh, and you, you kind of have no idea what the picture is going to turn out to be. But if you just stand there and watch, and, and you see how it begins to form, everything begins to make sense. And then right at the end, you find yourself staring at a beautiful painting of a mountain range, uh, a skyline, or someone's portrait. But you couldn't tell the end from the beginning. You wouldn't tell. You wouldn't know. And that's a bit like our passage today. Each of the chapters has their own set of principles and lessons, but as we look at them all together cumulatively, what we see is a painful but beautiful story of reconciliation. So what we're going to do is basically storytelling. We've got a lot of material. I'm going to take us through the chapters with their own set of emphasis, and I'll point out applications along the way, but at the very end, we're going to tie it all together and see how God works to bring about reconciliation that this fractured family needs. And it's through that reconciliation that becomes the vehicle through which the covenant line will be saved. So we're going to look at the architecture of reconciliation, and we'll look at three things. Firstly, confrontation in chapter 43, transformation in chapters 43 and 44, and reconciliation in chapter 45. So confrontation, transformation, and reconciliation. Let's start with confrontation. At the end of Genesis 41, the famine has already begun. But because Joseph knew that was coming, Egypt had already stored up grain, right? So, uh, but elsewhere, things were much, much bleaker. Right? And chapter 42 opens with Jacob saying, telling his sons to head to Egypt to get grain that they may live and not die. Immediately we're confronted with a desperate life and death situation. Right? Jacob's looking at his grain, he's looking at his supply of food, and he sees something there, but he knows it's not going to be enough. Jacob's saying they're so short of food, if they don't get grain from Egypt, the whole family is dead. And so here, it's not just one or two members of the covenant line who are in danger, right? The entire covenant family is in jeopardy from the threat of famine. Their only hope lies in Egypt's stores of grain. 
But as the brothers set off to Egypt, right, we're meant to get a sense of dread. Because in verse 2, Jacob instructs them to go down to Egypt. And in, in verse 3, we read, the brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. And what Jacob says is, go down to Egypt. And we've seen, haven't we, that all throughout Genesis, Moses uses the language of descent to signal to us, to the reader, that something's about to go wrong. Something's about to go wrong. And we have this sense of dread. What's going to happen to all the brothers? Because we've seen it all, haven't we? A band of brothers together, away from their father. And it's not difficult to figure out why, because right after this, we're told that Jacob was the governor over the land, and better still, he's the one doing the selling directly to the people. And you've got to wonder, is this basically out of the frying pan into the fire? Right, so finally, after 20 years, in verse 6, they come face to face with Joseph, and they bow down. And he recognizes them, but he doesn't tell them who he is, right? But we are told that as he's facing them, suddenly he remembers the dreams of them as a child. What were his dreams? Remember chapter 37? He dreamt that all his brothers and even his parents would bow down to him. So you can just imagine as he's looking at his brothers in the face, 20 years on, all the memories of betrayal and pain come flooding back to him. And you can almost imagine the rage and resentment begin to well up in him once again. These dormant feelings that have been buried for 20 years have been reawakened just by looking at his brothers. And at the same time, he's probably thinking, here's my chance. My brothers will finally bow down to me, just as my dream said. But of course, it isn't as simple as saying, bow down to me, because after all, everyone bowed down to the prime minister anyway, right? Where's the satisfaction in that? He wants them to bow down to Joseph, their brother, not this prime minister of Egypt that they don't really know, right? When they don't even realize that it's him, he wants them to bow down to him as their brother. So what Joseph does is he begins questioning his, fam his brothers roughly and he accuses them of treason, of being spies, and of trying to take advantage of a land in famine. That's why he says nakedness, right? It's a naked land, it's in trouble. And this, of course, terrifies Judah and the brothers and, and they splutter out their story. We, we, your servants, 12 brothers, sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and behold, the youngest is this day with our father and one is no more. Now you notice they include Joseph in the count. And they say that he is no more. Well, if only they knew. But it almost seems like Joseph pays no attention to what they say because he just goes on accusing them of being spies except for one detail. He says, if you want to prove your innocence, send one brother to fetch this youngest brother you mentioned. Then I'll know you're telling the truth. See, in the midst of them spewing out their CV and their family background, Joseph has picked up on one small detail the youngest brother, Benjamin, has been left behind in Canaan with his father. And we can't have that. Right? The dream said all the brothers would bow down to him, go fetch Benjamin. But first, Joseph throws them all into prison. Right? That must have been satisfying. And after three days, it's really strange, he changes his mind. And maybe, maybe this makes some sense. He says, you know what? I fear God. I know that if I only send one person back, that one person can't possibly carry enough food for all your households, and I don't want to be responsible for the deaths of your families. So instead he says, I'll keep one brother, while the rest of you 
can go back bringing food for your families. But then one other strange thing happens, right? While Joseph is striking this deal with them, they suddenly begin talking amongst themselves. Verse 21. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And then Reuben chips in, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. And they don't know, of course, they don't realize that Joseph can understand him speaking Hebrew. After all, he's this Egyptian prime minister, but he turns away and weeps. Perhaps this is vindication for him. Amidst his rage, perhaps he suddenly realizes that these brothers of his are no longer the same way they were 20 years ago. Remember, these are the same brothers who massacred Hamor, Shechem, and their families because of the rape of their sister, Dina. These men are not softies. They don't suddenly decide to confess their sins from 20 years ago because they feel like it. Something has happened in their hearts. Perhaps spending three days in prison, pondering the rest of their lives, has humbled them. Perhaps now facing the prospect of losing another brother to slavery in Egypt has provoked them to recall what they did to Joseph. But either way, because of the desperation of the famine and the desperation of being at the mercy of one of the most powerful men in the world, they're being forced to reckon with the magnitude of their sin. They're being shocked into finally acknowledging the error of their ways. And there's something to be learned here, right? Uh, one commentator puts it like this. He says, A taste of retribution was awakening feelings which a brother's and a father's tears had left totally untouched. What he's pointing out is that Joseph's cries for mercy as he's being sold into slavery and Jacob's cries of mourning as he mourns the death of Joseph did nothing to make the brothers feel remorseful, didn't do anything. But being put under this distress did something that those tears could not. And what this means for us is this. If you're actively disobeying God or you're in sin and you're not repentant, God will discipline you. One preacher puts it very well. He says, God's family will not have spoiled brats. We've all seen children who are out of control in the extreme. I don't think any of them are here in GCC, thank God. Right? But we've seen them right in, in a department store and they're just running all over the place or they're very entitled. They're constantly demanding things. Right? God's family won't have that. If you are continually unrepentant, God will discipline you. And that is his grace in your life to turn you away from self-destructive sin and to turn you back to him. And that's the most gracious thing that he can do. But how about this? How about you not wait for that? If you know right now that you are walking in sin and you are actively disobeying God and you have not repented, would you repent? Or would you rather wait like the brothers till God clobbers you on the head and then you acknowledge your sin, let's not do that. 
Let's have soft hearts. Let's be quick to repent to a God who delights to forgive. Let's do that instead. Well, in double quick time, what happens next? Joseph takes Simeon, and verse 24 says he bound him before their eyes. The brothers can clearly see that Joseph means business. Come back with Benjamin, or it's Simeon's life. And in an enormous act of kindness, he also has their money put back in their sacks with their food. But of course, when they find out along the way, when one of them's feeding their donkeys, he sees, he sees his money and they're terrified because it's going to look like they took the food and they left and they didn't pay. It's basically stealing, right? So they reach Canaan, they reach Jacob, and they retell their harrowing few days to Jacob. And understandably, Jacob is really upset. Right? He thinks that Simeon's probably dead um, because the brothers, uh, it looked like the brothers stole from Joseph and he's probably executed Simeon already. And now the brothers want to bring Benjamin back to Egypt in order to get more food. Now remember, Benjamin is the only other son from Jacob's favored wife, Rachel. And Jacob cannot bear the prospect of losing the last of Rachel's sons. But that seems to be the only option here, doesn't it? So what we've learned is how desperation induced by the famine is used by God to confront the sins of the brothers from years ago. And we are to recognize God's discipline upon us and be quick to repent. As we head into Genesis 43, we're left wondering what happens when the food runs out. Will Jacob allow Benjamin, this treasured last son of Rachel, to be brought to Egypt? Well, let's find out. Let's look at transformation in chapter 43 and 44. As we said, just as we said, verse 2, the food runs out. And now, like it or not, they have to go back to Egypt. Once again, it's the grain stalls of Egypt, which is their only hope. So Judah uncomfortably raises the topic. He reminds Jacob once again that there'll be no food unless Benjamin comes along to Egypt. And Judah even steps up to bear the blame should Benjamin not make it back to Canaan? And this is really crucial. Remember at the end of chapter 38? We said Judah seemed to be turning over a new leaf, but we didn't quite see how that fleshed out. Right? We didn't quite see to what extent he changed. Yet here, it seems like he's actually willing to put himself on the line as a sort of guarantee of Benjamin's safe return. So he... It seems like he's not the totally self-centered guy anymore that we saw in the earlier chapters who would sell his brother for 20 pieces, shekels of silver. But still, the question remains, is Jacob willing to risk the life of the last of Rachel's sons? Well, the truth is, he doesn't really have a choice. It's that or the whole family starves to death and he sees this. So what he does is he takes every measure possible to ensure the safety of Benjamin's life. Don't you find it funny that in the middle of a famine, we read in 43.11 that he gives the brothers food to bring back to the Egyptian prime minister? That's how much he loves Benjamin. In the midst of a famine, he would offer food to guarantee Benjamin's life. And so the brothers set off to Egypt one more time. Let's stop for a second and think. Can you imagine what the mood would have been like on that journey? They don't even know if Simeon is still alive. And this Egyptian prime minister probably thinks they're thieves. How do they know they won't get executed the second he sees them again? 
Well, the truth is they have no idea and they have no choice. They must go to Egypt, right? Uh, Jacob's prayer to send them off in verse 14 captures the emotion quite well, I think. If I'm bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. This is a family caught between a rock and a hard place. Death by famine or death by prime minister? Well, then, can you imagine the surprise of the brothers when they reach Egypt? Right? Does the prime minister take a sword to their necks? No. Rather, Joseph invites them into his house, which must have been very grand, right? The business of buying and selling provisions probably happened in a public area. So to be invited back to the prime minister's house was probably really confusing, right? Of all the thousands and thousands of people in Egypt, why have they been chosen, right? It's so surprising that they suspect, you know, maybe the prime minister had us brought here, right, just to have us punished, right? It wasn't, it's not satisfying enough, you know, in the public square, right? Probably to kill them fast, right? Maybe he wants to kill us slowly at home, right? And, and so what do they do? They, they rush to recount the whole story to the steward, right? You know, if this is the last shot at life, right? If what comes next is they come upon us and they want to take our donkeys, this is our last chance, right? Just tell our story, right? Of how they didn't mean to leave with their money and they just found it in their sacks, right? There was no bad intention. It's all just a misunderstanding. But a steward replies with a very unique reply. And you can almost imagine the steward giving a little smile as he says, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I receive your money. And one almost wonders how this Egyptian servant learned to talk like a Hebrew. Your God and the God of your father? That's how a Hebrew would talk about God. And it's almost like a Hebrew person taught this Egyptian what to say. And so in just a span of verses, the brothers begin to find more unexpected and pleasant surprises, right? Simeon is brought out. He's still alive. Not only that, but they've been invited to feast with the prime minister in his home. In a matter of verses, the brothers have gone from expecting death to in the middle of a famine, being invited to feast in the house of the ruler. And if you're sharp and you, that begins to sound very familiar to you, perhaps, Right? In verse 29 and 30, we read that upon seeing his brother Benjamin, Joseph hurried out. Why? For his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And yet, after he finishes his good cry, Joseph once again puts up his facade, and he controls himself, the text says, doesn't let anyone see his emotions, and he goes back out and he orders the food to be served. What's going on here? Why this, you know, dual face. Here is a man caught between two great and powerful emotions. On one hand, he feels the resentment that he's kept for two decades. And on the other hand, he's beginning to realize that his brothers have changed. And it's, he's finding it really difficult to find any reason to hate them now. They had the chance to leave Simeon behind to save their own skin, but they didn't. They came back, right? Sure, they needed food, but they remembered their brother. Well, let's press on. The food is served, and they all drank and were merry, a party with the prime minister himself. And you can almost feel all the troubles and worries fading away. And the next morning, as the brothers prepare to leave, little do they know, Joseph has set another trap. 
He has put his special silver cup in Benjamin's sack, and his steward catches up with the brothers on the way back to Canaan and accuses them of stealing this cup. And so they're very confident. They say, hey, this, this is not logical, right? If we wanted to steal from you, right? Why would we bring back the money and pay you back twice the amount when we came back the second trip? It doesn't make sense. We're not thieves. Uh, and so they're really confident. They pledge their lives. They say, you, you know, whoever has this cup, you can kill them. And so miraculously, how does Stuart know to line them up according to, to their age? What is this inside knowledge, right? But they do, and they find that silver cup in whose sight? Benjamin's. That treasured son whom Judah has promised on his life to bring back to Jacob. That's the son who must die? And the steward says, no, 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 you know, it's not, it's not death, I mean, maybe, maybe just slavery, right? As if that's much better. Um, but what happens? The brothers return to Egypt to stand before the prime minister. Now, one is bound to ask the question, why is Joseph setting all these traps, right? Like, what, what, what's the sense in this? Well, well, it could be that because they're both sons of Rachel, uh, maybe Joseph feels closer to Benjamin and he especially loves him. And the various views on this, and some people would say that it's purely out of resentment, right, that he's doing all these things. Um, but that doesn't really line up, right, because we see that on one hand, he's really sorrowful, um, and he's, he's moved to emotion. On the other hand, he has this facade of like, you know, I'm, I'm angry. Um, maybe he doesn't hate his other brothers as much anymore. Uh, and he, maybe he doesn't want to punish them. But he does love Benjamin particularly enough to keep him in Egypt where there's food. Maybe that could be it. But the brothers return to Egypt. They stand before the prime minister. And no sooner has Joseph said a sentence when Judah steps up to plead with the prime minister. Right? He doesn't even try to logic it away anymore. He just accepts the guilt and he tells the story from the beginning how Jacob didn't allow them to bring Benjamin at first and how they had, they had to bring him in order to get food and how Jacob could not possibly bear losing the last of his sons with Rachel. He'd probably die from his grief. And finally, Judah ends with recounting the promise he made to Jacob to bring Benjamin back safely. Let's read from verse 30. Now therefore, as soon as I came to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, soon as I come, then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, and our father with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. And he says, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah is interceding. He is pleading. He is making a case. Let Benjamin go. Take me instead. And now we know for sure that the Judah of chapter 44 is totally different from the Judah of chapter 37. The man who once sold his brother into slavery for 20 shekels of silver now stands ready to enter slavery in the place of another brother accused of taking a cup of silver. 
And well, as we're about to see in chapter 45, this actually softens Joseph's heart to the point of him revealing his identity and initiating reconciliation. Before we move on, there are some implications for us. Would you ask yourself, are you a Judah? In your family, in your workplace, right? Maybe you don't have to put yourself in someone's place to the extent that Judah had to, but can people see that your general disposition, your general attitude is to be other-centered rather than self-centered? Are you quick to give up your freedoms, your time, your income, your energy to raise someone else up? And if someone is need, in need, are you among the first to reach out and say, what do you need? And, and more than that, our Christian character of self-sacrifice and other-centeredness can be an excellent witness that serves to soften the hearts of those around us to the gospel. Right? There have been countless stories that I've heard and people I know who were previously so hardened and opposed to the gospel who, after seeing the kind of lives that their Christian friends lived, became open to hearing about Jesus and Christianity. And that's because Christ-like sacrificial lives show that Christianity and Christ are not just true, but beautiful. Because it's really easy to tell a set of facts. It's not so easy to make them beautiful. But if we live Christ-like lives, we make the gospel beautiful. I'm not saying, hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the gospel is not beautiful without our testimony, because the, the capstone is that Christ died. That's beauty. But I'm saying you embody the beauty of the gospel when you live like how Christ did. All right? Now, in chapter 44, we see how Judah's transformation over time brings Joseph from sheer resentment to reconciliation. So let's look at reconciliation itself. What happens next? Joseph cannot hold it in any longer. He tells all the servants to leave and he cries. In fact, he cries on the neck of each one of his brothers and he cries so loud that the other households could hear, I am Joseph, he says. I should say he cries out. And for a moment, his brothers stand terrified, right? Because this man in power turns out to be the very brother they sold into slavery. But that terror quickly fades as Joseph reassures them that he means no harm. He bids them come close, and they all embrace. And the effect of this is that even Pharaoh himself hears of Joseph's brothers coming, and he instructs that Joseph's family be taken care of, right? Verse 18 20, he says, I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say this, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Judah's intercession has brought Joseph from resentment to reconciliation, and now the entire covenant line is preserved out of the threat of famine. Now, is that a coincidence? That is God at work. Let's bring it to today. Reconciliation isn't just a Genesis 42 to 45 problem, is it? Right? When was the last time you got angry at someone? Did you have a big argument? 
or, or maybe you didn't get that upset, or you just got a bit annoyed. Right? The person just got on your nerves, said something you didn't like, or said something in a way that you didn't like. Or maybe you're not that type. Maybe you're the kind of person who keeps it inside, you're warm on the outside and volcano on the inside, so even better, the other person doesn't even know that something's wrong. When was the last clear memory? Was it a friend? Was it a family member from years ago? When was it? Was it last month? Was it last week? Was it yesterday? Or maybe for some of you, it was this morning. But of course, it's Sunday. Uh, so once you reach the ninth floor of KL Eco City, right, the, un the unspoken peace agreement kicks in and we're all smiles, right? We'll deal with it tonight. But I'm sure we can all remember a time of anger and resentment. Can't we? And can you remember the feeling of that bitter discomfort while your anger and resentment persisted? And you could almost feel tangibly the gulf between you and the other person, right? Even if you're sitting next to them. Even if there's someone you really love, the gulf is there. And by the way, some of you have been really hurt. Maybe it was a church. Maybe it was other Christians. Maybe the very people you thought would be Christ-like acted in a way, in a very opposite way of being Christ-like towards you. Maybe it was things they said to you, or maybe it was things they said about you behind your back. The demand here for reconciliation is not that you just flick a switch in your heart and say, oh, that's okay, we're all good now. Right? No, we're not saying that reconciliation is not painful. How do we know that? Do you, do you notice how this story is so full of tears and pain? The characters are not black and white. There is no utterly good or utterly bad person here. We have real human beings struggling through the real tides of emotion. The Bible is a very real book. The Bible doesn't run away from the fact that there's real pain and real hurt. Joseph cries seven times. And if you want to count each time that he cried on his brother's neck, much more than that. Reconciliation does, however, bid us to extend forgiveness even through that pain. There will be tears, but that should not stop us from pursuing reconciliation. And we see that God here works through reconciliation. It is through reconciliation between human beings that the covenant line continues and the covenant line is saved. How could we ever say that reconciliation is not worth pursuing? But you're probably wondering, well, I know a lot of words. I know forgiveness. I know reconciliation. What's the difference? Right? Jesus in the Beatitudes calls us to be peacemakers. Reconciliation leads us to peace. But I love what Paul says in Ephesians 4.32. Paul writes, Be kind to one another, says the Christians. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. And here it is. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's it. As Christians, we are called to pursue reconciliation. And here's the thing. Reconciliation is not just forgiveness, but forgiveness is part of reconciliation. It's more than that, right? Just like you can't clap with one hand, you can't do reconciliation with only one side forgiving the other. 
In Paul's words, reconciliation is forgiving one another. Or if we look at Genesis, the posture of reconciliation is an embrace. The distance that previously kept you and the other person apart is closed. And listen, remember what we said, it isn't denying reality. It isn't saying that that disagreement or that offense didn't happen. It's not saying that the pain that was felt isn't real. It is choosing to not let it block your vision of the other person and continue to keep you apart. That's what reconciliation is. But let me tell you something you already know. That's incredibly difficult. Because if you're like the brothers in Genesis 42, unrepentant and remorseless, I'm sure we all say, yep, that's me at one point or another, you're never going to reconcile with anyone. Because if you can't see the error of your ways, you'll never accept forgiveness from anyone because you'll say, I don't see why I need forgiveness. Right? You're, to your mind, you're never in the wrong. You can never be brought to an awareness that you've done something wrong. So you're never going to be able to say, thanks, thanks for forgiving me. You can't do it. And on the other hand, you'll never extend forgiveness to anyone because once again, in your eyes, you're never ever wrong. So you don't ever have to apologize to anyone. Why do I have to apologize? I'm never wrong. And yet, we reach the New Testament, we see that Christians ought to be the premier example of reconciliation. Peacemaker, Jesus says. Why? Because we take lots and lots of counseling and, and conflict resolution classes? No. It's because every Christian admits that they have been on the receiving end of undeserved forgiveness. Every Christian says, I was an enemy of God, I turn away, I refuse to be remorseful about the things I've done wrong, and I refuse to repent. That's the starting point of being a Christian. But God, but God forgave me. He chose to look over the things I'd done wrong, not that they didn't happen, but he chose to look over them. He saw me. He chose to reconcile me to him. He chose to embrace me and love me in spite of my flaws, in spite of my sin. And therefore, Christians draw from a totally different capacity for reconciliation. Because it's not rooted in whether we feel forgiving at that moment. It's rooted in God's forgiveness of us. But that leads us to Perhaps the biggest question, right? How do you know you're totally reconciled to God? Not just that words have been spoken, but that you are in an embrace, that the distance has been closed between you and God. How do you know that you can draw from that well of forgiveness and grace and offer it to other people? Our passage today was really embodying it for us, wasn't it? Even as Judah was standing before Joseph, trying to take his place, we knew, didn't we, that everything was going to be okay. We knew. In fact, even as the brothers were invited in to Joseph's house for a meal, we knew that everything was going to turn out okay. We are reconciled by one man standing before God, making the case that in himself, we've been brought back into the embrace of God. 
the case that Jesus makes before the Father is, Father, in their place condemned I stood so that now and forevermore they may never again fall under condemnation but only experience fellowship with you. And each week, we celebrate that with a meal. Sound familiar? The fact that we are called friends of God rather than his enemies. We gather around the table and we affirm that we are together in Christ. In Christ, we have the embrace of God and therefore we can freely embrace others in reconciliation. And look, I know that sometimes reconciliation just isn't possible. Sometimes that person might just never speak to you ever again. I've seen it happen in my own family. But at the very least, would you resolve to forgive those who trespass against you? And if it's someone who's not a Christian, your willingness to work toward reconciliation will be a beautiful and powerful and painful testimony to the beauty of the gospel and its capacity to change the world, person by person, relationship by relationship. As Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Let's pray. Father, these are words of life as we see how we have been reconciled to you. I pray that we won't just reflect on this as an intellectual exercise, but Spirit, I pray that you would take it and plant it deep in our hearts so that in the weeks to come, we would draw from the well of the knowledge that we have been forgiven and reconciled in Christ, that we are in your embrace, the distance has been closed, and now we can close the distance with those who trespass against us, or we have trespassed against. I pray that we would be humble, teachable, that we would repent. Help us, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. We invite you to learn more about Gospel City Church at gospelcitychurch.my.